Listener Production. I walked into a cafe recently. As soon as I walked in, the waiter, he sees me, comes straight up to me holding a bag and he says, Uber Eats. What does an award-winning comedian do when all of the theatres are closed? Chin-ups on a bar hanging outside the bathroom door, apparently. Nazim Hussein's lockdown life looks different to usual. But perhaps a little downtime isn't the worst thing after the whirlwind few years he's had. Reality television doesn't make you cool in the comedy world, but you know what? Like, (laughs) it has been the funniest experience for me. Nazim became a household name after reaching the final of I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here. He made his American TV debut, sharing a screen with none other than Bill Nye. And he has a comedy special on Netflix, truly the holy grail. You can't make pedophilia jokes. Pedophilia jokes are like the cardinal sin of comedy, aren't they? My name is Jamila Risby and welcome to The Weekend Briefing. Next is The Weekend List where we recommend what to watch, see, do, eat and listen to. But now, here's Nazim Hussain, sharing stories and making us laugh, doing exactly what he does best. Nazim Hussein, welcome to the weekend briefing. It's lovely to have you. Thanks for having me. How is lockdown five? Not bad, you know. Um, know exactly what to do. Pulled out the old weights from under the couch. Um, put up the chin-up bar in the entrance of the toilet. Um, you know, scheduling my regular walk to the cafe. Um, I catch up with friends that I only catch up with during lockdown, it seems. <laughs> They're lockdown friends. Yeah, it's like, it's, you know, it's not ideal, but um, we have our habits here in Melbourne. Yeah, we do. We're quite good at this. But I want to <laughs> start by talking about a happier time or hopefully mm. a happier time. I want to mm. take you right back and ask, do you have an earliest memory? Can you pinpoint mm. the first thing of your childhood that you remember? Yes. Okay, hey. this is literally, and it sounds made up, but it's, it is a vivid memory I have from when I was two, and I know I was two, I can timestamp it because I was um, at my mum's house, my parents' house, under the dining table, and, I, and there were guests in the lounge, and which is connected to the lounge, the, the dining room is connected to the lounge, and I was under the table and I was saying to myself, I'm two and I can talk. That is wild. That's really early. Yeah. So I, so I could talk and I knew how I was self-aware. I was arrogant at two. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I am two. And I, oh, I don't know who I was boasting to. I think to myself. You were pretty much, I think, and therefore I am at two. <laughs> exactly. It's all downhill from there. Um, what about you? Do, you? do you have one? I have a memory. I, I lived in Malaysia when I was little mm-hmm. and I have a memory of standing on the ground floor of our apartment and looking out the window and it was thunderstorming. And I remember thinking, oh, that means we can't go to the party. (laughs) And my mum says she thinks it must have been my third birthday, but we're not sure it could have been any party. But that, oh. that is what I remember, missing out on a party because weather. Oh, because of the rain. So now when you look at the rain, do you just think of parties that you miss out on? Yeah, I just sit there and no, that's what I think <laughs> when I see a press conference. Um, <laughs> tell me, Nazim, tell me about your childhood. I know you're really close to and proud of your sisters. What were you like mm. growing up? Um, probably just like just a physically smaller version of myself now. I was just... I don't know. I'm a nuisance. Uh, I, you know, grew up with um, largely, well, a single mum since um, from when I was five or six. Um, so my mum, two sisters, grew up in Melbourne, Burwood, um, fairly 
not boring suburb, but just not, it's not a destination suburb for anybody. Burwood East, there's came up at Burwood, not a whole lot going on. It was um, known for being a dry suburb and uh, people talk about that. Dry, I mean, you know, um, not weather-wise, but there was no alcohol there. Yeah. It's pretty halal in that sense. Um, went to the local primary school, Ashburton Primary School. I, I tried hard in school, got good grades, but it was also a bit of a nuisance. Like all my school report cards said, Nazim, though he does well in class, is constantly distracted and distracts others. So that was every single... Yeah, you were that kid. Was that kid. But teachers couldn't really tell me off. Um, they'd try to, but, I'd, you know, they'd be like, Nazim, you're talking too much. And I'd, I'd just agree with them. You're right, I'm talking too much. Do you <laughs> want me to go to the timeout corner? And, like, because I was, you know, I'd just make them laugh and I would just annoy them because they couldn't make me feel bad. Like I just sort of go, I was so annoying. I would be the most annoying kid to discipline. You want a kid to learn a lesson, but I never learned a lesson. It sounds like in addition to being annoying, you were trying to be in control. Like you were trying to own the situation and orchestrate what would happen next rather than someone else being in control, which I think, I so. think is quite like being a stand-up comedian because you're <laughs> the one running the room, yeah? I was definitely aware of boundaries and I'd always be trying to push them or just test them. And I thought I, I really enjoyed crossing a line and just seeing what happens and, you know, just I'd always know what the worst case scenario was, I think. And I'd always find it fun seeing my friends get shocked and surprised and go, oh, my God, when I just do something that you're not supposed to do. If there was a dare, I'd be the first person to put my hand up. I'll do it. I used to be like the matchmaker at school. You know, I was not a kid that girls necessarily or or anyone found like, well, he's that cool, hot kid. I was a annoying, funny one. So I'd be matchmaking everybody. Um, I remember I, once I orchestrated a mass, like a wedding, these two people at school and everyone attended. And then I got caught into the principal's office and told to call the wedding off because it was not appropriate that two kids in grade five got married. <laughs> I mean, it wouldn't have been binding, principal. <laughs> I know. But I feel like you could have let that one go. Exactly. But I remember there was like gifts and everything. People brought fun size snack size Mars bars and Snickers bars and stuff like that. It was, oh. um, it was a big deal. No one brought me snack size chocolates at my wedding. <laughs> Imagine if they did, if that was what you received. <laughs> to be honest, that's what you spend your cash on anyway. So, no, it was really fun. We're very tight. We grew up with not a whole lot of stuff, of money and cash and all that. We'd be, all be chipping in. We'd do leaflet delivery together and um, my mum would work several part-time jobs and, um, you know, we would take on chores around the house and cook meals. And we all sort of grew up pretty quickly, but it was always really fun. Um, and there was a lot of laughter at home. What kind of connection did you guys have to the local Muslim community in Melbourne during your childhood? Um, yeah, pretty constant, frequent connection with the Muslim community. It's pretty much, you know, we didn't have any extended family in Australia. Um, so our community was effectively our family. I didn't have any cousins. It was always really envious of kids that would just go, I'm hanging out with my cousins. I'm like, I don't have any cousins. But like the Muslim community and also the Sri Lankan Muslim community in particular were communities that we immersed ourselves in. And, you know, I think we all understood each other in ways that kids at school couldn't understand us. You know, we'd do weird stuff at school, but in the community it's just like normal. So, but yeah, we would be at local community halls every Saturday, Friday nights. There'd be maybe some like religious gathering at someone's house and you go there for the talk, but really you're there for the food and the socialising. Being, I guess, Muslim and or not white growing up, you have like two or three identities. So at school, you you just do the Aussie thing. Um, but then as soon as, you know, it's home time, you're, you're probably on the way to some 
mosque event or something in the community that, you know, you have a completely separate set of friends and a different life that um, very, very disconnected. Yeah. I, I mean, I um, didn't grow up in the Muslim community in Australia the way you did, but mm. my um, ancestors are Muslim. My father was mm. raised very devoutly religious, but I always got the sense and no one ever said it to me, mm. but when I was a kid, I was somehow given this message that when we hung out with cousins and the community and the rest, we weren't necessarily supposed to talk about that at school, that that wasn't mm. necessarily a good idea. And no one ever said that to me or told mm. me that. But I must have figured out these two worlds don't cross. When did you move to Australia? I was born in Australia. Oh, okay. Um, okay. And then we m- moved to Malaysia for several years and moved back again. I have no idea how white people make friends. Like, because <laughs> you know, we got community groups. You know, you make friends at work and this and that, but like for me, those have never been really deep friendships. I haven't grown up with them. Like I I don't know their family. Whereas, you know, when you make friends in the community, um, you know everybody that's, you know, connected to that person. So I'll ask my husband and get back to you on how white people make friends. How do white people make friends? I will report back. How do they make deep friends? You travelled to Sri Lanka in 2019, I think, and I was reading somewhere that you were really looking to reconcile your identities as someone with Sri Lankan heritage who spend most of your life in Australia. Mm. Like what did you learn? Did you did you uh, come away feeling like you had a better sense of it or is it just more I confusing? Think, well, firstly, um, that trip was funded by Audible. So I was like, yeah, I'll, I'll go there. I definitely need to figure out who I am. I'll search my cultural <laughs> roots for money. <laughs> exactly. But also, you know, I guess it, it did coincide with, with the birth of my son who's now three and, uh, you know, he's half Sri Lankan, quarter Irish, quarter South African. So the idea of me being Sri Lankan in Australia growing up with my parents from Sri Lanka, I reconciled, but I don't know how that, like how do I explain to my son the point of his Sri Lankanness in him and what do I need to know in order to pass that on to him? What role does being Sri Lankan in me have to do with it? So anyway, I just thought I'd go there and figure out. Sri Lankanness, what it means, you know, the version of Sri Lanka that I understand via my mum is a an idea that she had in her mind from when she was mm. living in Sri Lanka up until the mid-70s. So it's kind of a dated idea. It doesn't necessarily marry with the Sri Lanka of today. You go there and it's almost like in many ways Australia. I still really don't know how to answer what it means to be Sri Lankan. <laughs> I think it's just nice to know that lineage is important and knowing where you come from helps you appreciate where you are and sort of seeing the life that my parents and my grandparents and my family abroad have lived in Sri Lanka just helps you appreciate rightly or wrongly like what we have here in Australia and also just the life that I live now. I have found whenever I've travelled back to India where my father's family are from that I don't get a sense of I belong here in the place in, in, in at India, all. You mean? Yeah, I don't oh, get yeah. that at all. But I do get a sense of I belong with these people. Like mm. I, I tend to feel it about meeting family and extended family because we look similar and exactly. well, that's we've the- got so much in common. But the place still feels like I'm a visitor. Well, that's that's the craziest thing. It's like, and I think only like our generation of, of ethnics will kind of get it. Like in Australia, it's still a normatively white society. Like you just turn on television, just walk, you know, it's, 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 um, white culture is, is, is normal. So yeah, you don't feel completely Australian here, but then you go, yeah, you go back to India or Sri Lanka and we look like we fit in, but we don't. <laughs> like what, what, what actual stake do we have in those places? Our lived experience 
we haven't put in the years over there. Yeah. I always feel like when I land in Sri Lanka, I'm like, I am home. This is how it feels to be part of a majority. Everyone looks like me. <laughs> the weather suits my, my skin. My, uh, you know, I have a bit of eczema goes when I'm there. Like this is just, but then I start talking and everyone looks at me like, look at him. The face doesn't <laughs> match the accent. Talk to me about comedy. When did you first realise that comedy could be a career? Because clearly you were funny at school and you were making social capital out of it. When did you realise you could make actual capital out of it? You know, it was never, you know, like I never sat down and thought, I'm going to be a comedian. I just used to muck around, like we are talking about the community before, we'd have community events and I'd be the guy that would, uh, that, that asked to get up and to host the thing, introduce the guests, or maybe, oh crap, the projector has broken, or um, the speaker's running late, quick Nazim, just talk to them and explain. So I just get up and just literally make fun of people in the crowd, tell a story about something, just, I didn't even think of it as a stand-up. I was actually inspired by this group of comedians from America called Allah Made Me Funny. They're three Muslim comedians. I'd never heard anybody do stand-up about our experience. The stand-up was Eddie Murphy and Chris Rock and other comedians who just talked about non-Muslim life or, you know, you can understand it, but it wasn't. So I heard these guys talk about like Muslim life to Muslim audiences. And I was like, what that is, that blew my mind. I memorized all their stuff. I even used to perform it to community groups thinking that that was fine. Oh, just ripping off their stuff. I was like, have you guys heard Az Harusman? And then I'd literally just do his routine. <laughs> People would laugh. And I thought I was just like singing a song. And I met them when they came to Australia. Uh, they toured Australia and um, the promoter said they wanted a, a local Muslim comedian to open. And, and there wasn't any local Muslim comedians. And someone said, oh, Nazim's a, a comedian. And I was like, am I? And so I met them and I was like, guys, I love your stuff. I perform your stuff everywhere. And they're like, what? That is so weird. <laughs> but um, they asked me to open for them across Australia, um, including at Her Majesty's Theatre in Melbourne, which is like a 2000. Oh, whoa. First gig I did as an actual stand-up was in front of 2,000 people. Never done stand-up, stand-up in my life. And I just told stories and then, um, you know, the crowd laughed as they normally would to those sorts of stories. Um, And then I saw them do their thing and they smashed it. And afterwards they were like, hey, so, yeah, have you done stand-up before? And I was like, not really. You know, I've sort of talked in front of crowds and made jokes about people but not stand-up, stand-up. And they said, well, look, you know, there's a – a writing element to it. You've got to actually consider what you say before you say it and really fine tune the joke. And so they actually taught me how to do stand up um, over a couple of catch ups. And I was like, oh, so you've got to write your jokes out or think about punchlines before you just tell a random story. Since meeting them, I then went on to um, enter raw comedy. I just was doing it alongside uni and then full time work. Um, and then it just got busier and busier, this sort of side hobby. Legally Brown, a show that I do on SBS, um, was commissioned. And so I went to my boss at work and I said, hey, I need to take six months off to do this show. I don't think I can say no to it, but I'm also happy to say no to it if it means I lose my job here. And they said, no, no, look, just do it. They said the corporate world's always going to be here. So I was like, all right, fine, I'll, I'll do the show. I did the show and then it just got busier after that and it just rolled on and I just never ended up going back to uh, PwC, which is where I was. And even now I still think when I run out of jokes, I'll just go get a job again. I don't know if you can plan a career in this thing. It's so weird. Obviously, you filmed a show for Netflix. Are you the kind of guy that pinches himself and kind of can't believe it's oh. true? Or are you just like, yeah, of course, I did that. That was coming. No, it's, I have the biggest imposter syndrome. I always feel like of someone's, someone just maybe likes me as a person and it's just like, oh, I'll give him a show. And I'm like, oh, 
you know, they probably like me, but I don't belong on there. But, you know, look, I'm, I'm, I'll uh, try my best wherever I get an opportunity. But, yeah, it's so weird. I once performed to Kevin Hart. Like Kevin Hart, he put on a series of lineup shows and um, it was on his platform called LOL and it was in filmed in Montreal. And I thought, oh, yeah, this is pretty cool. He's, he, this network is paying for flights and accommodation and you get to perform and it's filmed. And and I, I thought, oh, Kevin Hart's just executive producing and he won't be there. And then I walk on stage and he's literally – Wow. The, I could see his face in the middle of the crowd and I was like, this is the weirdest thing ever. And he was really complimentary afterwards. He came up, he said, that was really good, man. And then his personal trainer, who I also follow on Instagram, said something <laughs> nice too. So I was like, whoa, I can retire now. Also meeting Dave Chappelle was one of those moments where I thought I can, yeah. I can finish. I'm done. I'm done with life now. It's, it's all. Are you someone who's cool in those moments? Like, nah. do you, or no, do, you no. ju- do you gush? Do you go silent? Yeah, I go crazy. I um, yeah. Well, actually, the first time I met Dave Chappelle was um, backstage at the Palais when I was um, – due to open for him that night and uh i remember being really excited like he's my favorite comedian ever even legally brown the format of that show was you know, <laughs> unashamedly based on Chappelle show so it's backstage and um katie minchin um is my promoter or was my promoter at the time her and i were just talking and then suddenly she's like hey dave this is naz and then it was dave Chappelle just standing there i looked at him and i, and I couldn't say anything like i'm a t- chatty guy I literally couldn't say a word and it was just silence Dave said hey Nas and then Katie goes hey Dave Nazim's really excited to meet you and then he just walked to his room but I couldn't get a word out (laughs) I was just standing there stunned I'm an idiot so then I met him like so you know I opened for him Ronnie Cheng did too and Matt Okai and we did different dates the last night we ended up in his hotel room and he was just telling us stories. He had some other people there. It was all, it was a pretty weird, bizarre night. And we thought we're just one of a few people and he's, you know, that he's met hundreds here in Australia. He's going to forget us. Fast forward to 2017, he was uh, hosting Saturday Night Live before Trump got elected and uh, he was doing a warm-up show at some venue and I got myself a ticket. On the way in, um, his agent saw me and said, oh, he can open or he's an opener. Give him a band. He's a comedian. So they put a, a band around wrist and I went and hung out in Dave Chappelle's room and I was like, oh, my God, I get to meet Dave Chappelle again. I was so excited. The lights were dim. There's music on. Put the lights up a little bit. Started looking at the, the food that he has. He walks in and he puts the lights back down again and he's like, hey, Nas. Um, and I was like, hey. And he goes, just do 15 to 20 minutes. And I was like, what? I actually didn't think I was going to perform. I thought I was just going to meet him. So I went out on stage. Oh, no. 15 to 20 minutes of comedy. The crowd was so good. I actually thought, oh, my God, how the hell is Dave going to follow that? Like, that <laughs> was insane. That's how arrogant I got. But that's how um, generous the crowd was. Then Dave comes on and literally takes it to another atmosphere. Like, it was just insane. I was like, oh, yeah, fair enough. Um, I was so cocky. But it was it was one of the best gigs I've had in my life. Anyway, again, after the gig, Dave just hangs out with people I think there was, I can't remember which A-listers were there, but it was all sorts of weird stuff happened. I ended up talking to a guy and when he put his number in my phone, he was a guy from the Wu-Tang Clan. I was like, what? I've been speaking what? to Anyway, 4 a.m. I think it was, he breaks away from whoever he's talking to and comes up to me, puts his arm around me and, and announces to everybody, hey, everyone, this is Nas. Every time I come to Australia, I always get Nas to open for me. He's come once and, you know, but it was very generous. And then he started talking to me and he said, hey, how's, um, he goes, congrats on the Netflix thing. I was doing something with Bill Nye on Netflix. I said, oh, thank you very much. And he goes, how's your boy Matt doing? Matt Okar. And I was like, oh, he's doing really well. He's doing breakfast radio right now. And he goes, and Ronnie, he's on the Daily Show right now. I was like, yeah, 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 he is. And he goes, I told you when I saw you last time in the hotel room, this has to mean something or you're going to be somebody. And he completely remembered the conversation. Wow. 
in 2013 or 14 when he toured Australia. Like it was, it is bizarre how great his memory was. But also, you know, when you meet idols and they just elevate in your mind, like he was, he was one of those. I never want to meet him again in case it's just worse. Exactly, in case it was just <laughs> fake. Exactly. <laughs> it's been a little while, mostly because of the pandemic, since I've seen your comedy live. And I remember the last time my husband and I came to see you and Uh-oh. it was a couple of days before, it might have even been the night before your little boy was born. Yes. And I remember telling you that fatherhood was going to be hysterical, <laughs> that it was going to be the funniest thing you've ever done. Oh, my God. Is it funny? No, you're absolutely right. It is. It's so funny. Like, like you think you can shape someone. You can't. They're prepackaged. You're just there to, like, water them. Like he does things just to see my reaction. Like he, and I'm the most boring person when I'm around him because you're just constantly just keeping them alive, which means saying no a lot of the time, trying to force feed them, just, you know. He's proof that personality is definitely a large part to do with genetics. Like I see my own annoying personality traits in him (laughs) and I'm like, well, (laughs) I I don't know if I should have changed my personality in my life so that my kid wouldn't be as annoying as I am. But he's cute and annoying. There was a phase recently where he couldn't say red, he'd say dead. And, oh, that's um, good. There was a guy wearing a red T-shirt the other day and he points at him and he goes, dead. And I was like, oh, my God. The guy looked at him and was like, is that kid prophesizing my death or is he, is he making a threat? Can I report him? But anyway, he's, um, he's great. Nazim, it has been so much fun having you on the weekend briefing. I have loved watching you kill it over the last few <laughs> years, mostly from afar on the other side of a TV screen, and I'm glad things are going so well. And good luck with the chin-ups in lockdown. Likewise, Jamila. Like you're, you're a good influence on my sister and me, so please <laughs> don't keep your distance. <laughs> I could come inside the 1.5. <laughs> That's it for my conversation with Nazim Hussein. You can, of course, catch him on Netflix with his comedy special. Or if you're in Canberra, then I've got a treat for you. He is coming down your way on the 9th of October and tickets are available now. Welcome to The Weekend List with me, Jamila Rizvi, and Tate McGregor, who is joining us to tell us what we should be watching, eating, doing, podcasting, whatever it might be this weekend, stuff to keep us busy. And with more than half the country in lockdown, we need some suggestions. Tate, what have you got? A brand new album by the Kid Leroy. He's a Camilla Roy boy right here from Sydney and he's taking over the globe. In fact, he has the biggest song on the planet and that is Certified. It's with Justin Bieber. It's called Stay. You've probably heard it. I do the same thing. I told you that I never would. I told you I'd change. Even when I knew I never could. Know that I can't find nobody else as good as you. I need you to stay. Need you to stay. But now he's got a whole album. It's called... Love 3 Over You and it was out yesterday. It not only features his song with Justin Bieber but it also brings along Polo G, Little Dirk, Stunner Gambino, a bunch of really cool hip-hop artists that you should get your ears across but if anything you should be supporting this really young Australian. I don't even think he's 18 yet but it's insane the amount of traction this guy has. So yeah, the kid Leroy, go check out his new album. But Jamila, let's get into the kitchen. What are we cooking? So when I get locked down, Tate, I like to eat. Mm. And in order to eat, I must cook. And I have discovered this amazing Hunza pie, H-U-N-Z-A. It's from Good Food and it's a classic 
kind of hippie 60s vegetarian dish and it makes silver beet the hero and it includes the silver beet stems, which normally you like cut up and chuck out. So I think it's a really good sustainable dish as well. Essentially, it's a pie that is full of wholemeal flour, yummy, buttery taste, and then it's got grated tasty cheese, some brown rice and silver beet. Really easy to cook, even for those of you who aren't that swell in the kitchen and really comforting lockdown food. That sounds like exactly what I need right now. And hey, while you're there, we've also had a listener called Lindsay send in a recipe that we should try. She says it's very easy and very delicious. She's cooking peanut butter noodles with cucumbers. This recipe is a Hetty McKinnon recipe. It's creamy, crunchy, salty, sweet, all at the same time. And you can find this one on Bon Appetit. So make sure you check out the show notes because you'll find it linked in there. And hey, if you've got a recommendation like Lindsay, make sure you hit us up on Instagram. We want to know what you're watching, listening, seeing, doing, cooking, podcasting. Send us a message at The Briefing Podcast. I have one last recommendation and that is a good old Stan watch. So on Stan at the moment is The Bold Type, which has just wrapped its final season. It's been running for five seasons now. So there is a whole lot for you to get into. Is The Bold Type perfect? No, it absolutely is not. Mostly because it is about women who run a magazine and when they start a website connected to the magazine, they call it the .com. So there are some errors in this drama, but it is good, cheap, trashy, girly, watchable stuff. It follows three young women, Jane, Kat and Sutton, as they commence their kind of working lives at a magazine called Scarlet. And they evolve over the time that they're working there, but their friendship stays really strong. And I always love a show that centres female friendship and doesn't think it has to break those friendships up to make it interesting. Does it pass the Bechdel test? It would most definitely pass the Bechdel test. I would even go so far as to suggest that every episode would pass the Bechdel test, which means that these women are not just discussing the men they might be dating. These women are discussing everything in their lives. And one of the characters, Kat, is a lesbian, so she's never discussing men she's dating. And the other two are career women. They're focused on what they're doing for work. They're invested in their families. There are discussions of health scares and breast cancer. There are difficult conversations with colleagues. It's a show that covers everything. And I think while there is some silliness and they maybe rushed the finale a bit, it's also really satisfying, easy watching. That's it for this episode of The Weekend Briefing. Thank you so much for giving us your company. I wanted to ask you a little favour because We love making this show, we really do, but we can only make it if you guys are listening. And the best way for you to be listening is to subscribe because that's how you ensure that you never miss an episode. That's how you ensure that we're jumping into your podcast feed six times a week, in fact, with news and views and interviews and exciting stuff for you to download and listen to jump on over to wherever you get your podcasts, ideally the listener app. Make sure you subscribe. Give us five stars and a lovely comment while you're there. And we will see you on Monday morning, bright and early, when Tom and Annika will have the latest headlines straight to your headphones. Listener.